0: Clearly, one of the most important recent developments in clinical research in head and neck cancer has been the role of multidisciplinary treatment, particularly the pairing of radiation therapy and systemic treatment. I met with radiation oncologist Dr. David Rosenthal for his perspective, and he began by providing a background to this combined strategy. Locally advanced
1: head and neck cancer treatment selection has been a challenge for decades. Up through... Perhaps the early 90s, the main stay of treatment was surgery and post-operative radiation for patients who had, quote, resectable disease. And for patients who had more advanced disease, the treatment often used was radiation therapy alone. The outcomes in terms of local regional control and survival were relatively poor. Many of the patients with very advanced disease would ultimately succumb because of local regional failures. Now over the last decade or two, there have been multiple trials comparing radiation therapy alone versus concurrent chemoradiation, first for patients with unresectable advanced disease, and then more recently for patients with more intermediate stage disease who were interested in non-surgical organ preservation. And we've made great progress in this in terms of local regional control and in survival. So this brings up a couple of interesting unsolved questions. One of them is that local control is still less than 100%. Number two, now that local control is improved, the problem of distant metastasis now becomes more relevant as a pattern of failure. And in some cases, in some clinical trials can be the predominant pattern of failure. And another major question is the problems of toxicities. So that even though radiation-based treatments with or without chemotherapy preserve organs numerically, they're not always preserved functionally. And this is especially relevant with swallowing function. So I think that that pretty much summarizes the last two decades of progress in treatment and some of the challenges that are still remaining to us. So we've done many trials at our institution and through cooperative groups, such as the Radiation Therapy Oncology Group, RTOG, To try to help address the first problem. How do we improve control over these standard combinations? Now over the last two decades the progress in improvement of local control has come really in two areas. One of them has been through radiation techniques and this usually involves altered fractionation. The standard is once daily radiation treatments But this can be intensified by giving twice-daily radiation treatments for part or all of the course of radiation therapy over an approximate six- or seven-week interval. That has helped improve local control in the range of about 10%. The other more profound effect has been using concurrent chemotherapy that has a greater effect on local control and also on nodal control in the neck, so local regional control. And this can be more in the range of 20 to 30%. And this is a great enough advantage to have an improvement in overall survival. So the fractionation alone, individual trials, don't really show survival advantage, just some control at the primary site but not the nodes. And a meta-analysis, however, did show about a 3% improvement in overall survival for that. So the next logical question to ask for those of us who are interested in trying to further improve outcomes is to say, well, what if we put the two of these approaches together, altered fractionation and chemotherapy at the same time? So, this is a trial that was run in the RTOG 0129 that closed now almost three years ago, and the data is maturing. The preliminary toxicity data was presented at ASTRO 07, and the efficacy data hopefully will be ready for ASCO coming up this next year in 09. And in this study, all patients got concurrent chemotherapy using cisplatin 100 milligrams per meter squared days 122 and 43. And the patients are randomized between standard fractionation, 70 gray in 35 fractions. That's five fractions a week for seven weeks versus concomitant and boost treatment, which gives approximately the same dose, 72 gray, but in six weeks. So here the radiation, similar dose is compressed from seven until six weeks. So the experimental question is, in the setting of concurrent chemotherapy, what is the advantage or is there an advantage of accelerating the radiation therapy, intensifying that biologic effect? And that's a big question that is still
0: unanswered and that we're looking forward to the results of that data. Can you talk a little bit about the biologic basis for hoping that this is going to have improved tumor control? Well,
1: when we give the fractionated radiation therapy usually once a day. There are several different processes that go on biologically within cells, both normal and tumor cells. Some of these have to do with repair of the damage. So not all of the tumor cells are killed. Some of them repair. Similarly, the normal tissues have to undergo repair in order to have a differential effect. Cells are reassorted at different phases of the cell cycle. And so there are several of these different biologic effects that are intensified by this altering radiation fractionation. Some of the chemotherapy drugs may act in different ways. For instance, the taxanes will help to synchronize cells at the G2M phase of the cell cycle where they're more relatively radiosensitive so that when the radiation treatment comes along, we can kill a greater proportion of the tumor cells. So these are the different factors that we try to manipulate with combining radiation and chemotherapy in different dose schedules.
0: Is there any sort of biologic basis to think that, say, twice a day is optimal as opposed to three or four or six times a day? Well, there actually
1: have been studies where the clinical trials where radiation therapy was given more than twice a day and even given through weekends. And in the head and neck area, this did not seem to be as fruitful. And it also opens up a greater risk of toxicities.
0: What was seen in terms of safety?
1: The preliminary safety information is very interesting. The preliminary data suggests that while there's some increase perhaps in mucositis and some of the earlier acute toxicities, some of the more worrisome consequential toxicities such as dysphagia and risk of longer-term feeding tube dependency is not increased. So I think that we have to look forward to seeing these data as they mature and put them in context with some of the other trials that are out there There was a study done in Germany, reported several years ago, where a similar question was asked, but in sort of the opposite direction. In that study, they gave everybody accelerated, fractionated radiation therapy, and they randomized them to get chemotherapy or not. And as a whole, there was no improvement in survival outcomes for the group that had both. And one of the problems is of the two-year survivors, almost half of the patients who had the accelerated radiation and chemotherapy were feeding tube dependent. So I think that we have to be very careful in using these aggressive chemoradiation regimens until we get a clear signal of safety and efficacy. And we're really looking to RTOG 0129 using radiation techniques and chemotherapy dose types and dose schedules that we're commonly using in this country. So I think that when we're treating patients off protocol, my general preference for most of the time is to treat patients in the setting of concurrent chemotherapy with one's daily radiation therapy until we see a signal that there's a clear advantage of accelerating radiation in that setting
0: What are some of the other radiation techniques that are being looked at right now and being utilized?
1: Most of the interest in radiation therapy now has to do more with technology and the different delivery techniques that are available. And these typically focus on two main areas. One of them is development of more three-dimensionally conformal dose clouds of radiation that tightly hug our intended target volumes and allow us to have a more rapid fall-off in dose to the adjacent uninvolved normal structures. And another part of that is to involve imaging on a daily basis with the treatment in order to help to make sure that our relationships between the tumor and the targets and the rest of the anatomy are stable, that we're covering our target, and that as the anatomy change, as patients gain or lose weight, or as tumors shrink, that We are still getting the coverage that we want on the normal structures and still having that same protection. That is the coverage of the tumor structures with the high dose radiation and still getting the protection of the normal structures during the dynamic changes during the, say, six or seven week course of radiation therapy.
0: How widely used is that approach? Well, this is becoming more
1: and more widespread. The first foray into this area has been with what's called intensity modulated radiation therapy or IMRT that started to become available perhaps over the last seven or eight years. And now in many institutions such as ours, the majority of head and neck cancer patients are treated with this technique. There's other similar renditions of this, such as tomotherapy that involves some slight differences in dynamic delivery and has some built-in imaging techniques Other techniques involve having CT-based imaging on the treatment type table, along with the therapeutic aspects. And all of this falls into the rubric of what's called image-guided radiation therapy, or IGRT. And this is basically just a refinement of IMRT with this imaging-based treatment. Another exciting new area of treatment and technology is the use of proton therapy. We've had our proton therapy center opened at MD Anderson for just about two years now, and this is becoming an increasingly interesting area of treatment. The main advantage of protons is that we can even get a more conformal dose distribution than we can with the IMRT, IGRT techniques. So x-rays, for instance, will, when we have an x-ray beam that we direct at a target, it will pass through the target and interact partially, and there will be attenuation as we go. But the point is that there's exit dose. So I always tell my patients, think of the analogy of a chest X-ray, stand up against the film, X-rays come through the back, exit through the front of the chest, and expose the film. It's really only a minority of the x rays beams that interact in the chest. So there is this exit dose. In the therapeutic setting, that gives dose to normal tissues distal to the tumor, on the other side of the tumor, and the great thing about protons is that there's no exit dose. All of the energy is given up at the end of the path length of the proton in what's called a Bragg peak. And because there's no exit, we can get much tighter conformal doses and severely restrict dose to adjacent normal structures. In head and neck, we are just starting to develop applications in our current center. One of the prerequisites for... A major advantage in the head and neck is to have what we call a scanning beam that would allow us to develop what could be called intensity modulated proton therapy, similar to intensity modulated radiation therapy. And when this is fully refined and developed, I think that we will get more uniform and consistent improved radiation plans that can really help many but not all patients. So I think that it's going to depend on specifically where the tumor is and what the critical structures adjacent are. So skull-based tumors, for instance, nasopharynx, paranasal sinus tumors, where we have to deliver high dose, but we need rapid fall-off because we're immediately adjacent to optic nerves, chias, and brainstem and spinal cord in areas like this. It's going to be critical. In the oropharynx, we're treating the majority of our patients. It may not have as great an application. There will likely be some dosimetric advantages, but we're going to really have to compare the plans and see what individual patients would benefit from those on a case-by-case basis.
0: So being a medical oncologist, I know that every time I interview a radiation oncologist, I'm at risk that I'm going to get some email, as I do every now and then, from a radiation oncologist saying, hey, you know, everything you asked them was way too basic. You know, they give me a list of 10 or 15 other things that they as radiation oncologists want to pick your brains about. So let me just ask you, what are some of the questions that you get about management of head and neck cancer from radiation oncologists specifically?
1: Well, most radiation oncologists... Do not ask me about technique. Most of the questions focus on treatment selection. which That's interesting. Is something that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Sometimes we will talk about doses, what doses of radiation to give to different areas of gross disease, of areas that we're going to treat electively or those areas at intermediate risk. However, when I do visit different centers, I'm often asked if I wouldn't mind taking a look at an IMRT treatment plan and help review and perhaps give some suggestions based on what we might do and some positive critique. But that's not something that you can easily discuss when people ask questions without looking at specific plan. So I will say that IMRT really does have a learning curve. It's a relatively new treatment. We started using it probably around 2000, 2001, but it really wasn't until the end of 2002 that it really sort of picked up. Its use in the community and other centers probably started around the same time, and it really involves a learning curve. See, in the older treatments, with 3D conformal radiation therapy, we used to treat most head and neck cancers with what's called a three-field technique. The primary tumor, in general, most of the time was treated in the upper fields, which were right and left lateral opposed fields. Those could be custom-shaped, but all of the tissues from skin entry to skin exit received approximately 100% of the dose. That was the goal, plus minus 5%. Now, with IMRT, we can look at individual CT slices, and we can contour or circle different areas and assign different doses. So it becomes critical that we understand the interpretation of the physical exam and the imaging techniques in order to properly delineate the tumor target, assign the proper dose and margin to that, determine the areas that need to be treated prophylactically, how to spare some of the structures safely that we want, such as the spinal cord or, more electively, the parotid salivary glands, and create a very inhomogeneous plan, the opposite of what we had before. So that is really a technical challenge that still many people are going through a learning curve. And so that's something that I think that at our different meetings, such as RTOG meetings. I always try to show some examples of cases involved in our protocols of some of the less optimal approaches and some of the more successful approaches. There are always these different learning sessions. At Astro this year, there's an IMRT, IGRT symposium to help continue this education process.
0: What do we know about the quality of therapy that's actually going on in the community, and how much of a difference does technique make? What do we really know about, particularly in terms of long-term outcome, the difference in terms of the quality of the technique? That is a very
1: interesting question. There really isn't any data out there that's published on this. Though I think that given that IMRT has a lower margin of error tolerance than the prior technique, and it becomes much more of a technical skill and art, similar to, say, a surgical technique, then I think that there must be differences. I really think that physicians who treat patients with different types of tumors on a regular frequent basis and really have their skills honed are likely to do better, on average, than operators who may do one or two cases a year. I mean, this has been clearly shown to be the case in other technical pursuits, such as different surgical techniques. And I think that there's probably no reason that same principle would not hold here, though we don't have any definite data on that. The only technical QA data that we have has to do more with some of the physics aspects. And there have been some publications... Jeff Ibbett at our institution has gone out to help certify institutions, and they use a phantom and look at radiation dose distributions, and they look at the percent of plans or areas that are treated to within tolerance versus those without. And there is some variation out there. So I think that we're going to learn more and more about this as this data matures.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the issue of supportive care, and you were one of the authors on a paper published May twentieth in the journal Clinical Oncology on a phase two study of palifermin. Can you talk about that and the whole concept of trying to deal with this issue clinically and in research? Yes,
1: this is one of my main areas of clinical research interest. It has to do with the symptom toxicity management and symptom support and identification. When we give these intensive treatment regimens with accelerated radiation, chemo radiation, the mucositis becomes the major and the dose limiting toxicity, acute mucositis. So the mucositis occurs earlier, it's more severe, it's longer lasting. Patients have many symptoms associated with that, such as pain, dysphagia, dynophasia. The majority who get chemo radiation in the accelerated setting, probably at least 85%, will require feeding tubes. And this is a major symptom burden issue acutely and has negative quality of life impacts. Another thing that we've learned is that intensive treatment regimens associated with high rates of high grade mucositis are also associated with an increased risk for long term dysphagia and feeding tube dependency. So our main interests and goals then are to try to reduce mucositis acutely, to reduce the immediate symptom burden, and then try to prevent the long-term swallowing problems.
0: I'd like you to explore that, but also maybe bring in the issue, and I know you had a paper that I thought was really interesting on this, in terms of the consequences of mucositis-induced treatment breaks and dose reductions. Yes, so
1: when we're using radiation therapy alone, it is very clear that the overall time factor is critical for tumor control and survival. So if patients have unplanned or unnecessary interruptions in the course of radiation therapy so that it is protracted, then the outcomes are worse, local control and survival. So that's been shown in many studies. And sort of on the flip side of that, We've discussed how accelerating radiation therapy, shortening the course, improves the outcomes. So this is all the same principle of how the time factor comes in. So if the standard course is seven weeks and that's what's planned, if patients go on breaks because of, say, mucositis or other toxicities and the treatment is over eight or nine weeks, they're not going to do as well. On the other hand, if we give an accelerated course, give that same 70 gray approximate in six weeks we're going to get probably a 10% or so improvement in local control. So the time factor is very critical. Now, when we give concurrent chemoradiation, then the question is not as clear. We know that we're going to kill more tumor cells with the combination of radiation and chemotherapy together. So there are some who feel that the impact of brief treatment interruptions may not be as great in terms of a decrement of survival and control. Everett Vokes, for instance, who's a very well-known oncologist at the University of Chicago, has a very intensive treatment regimen where he uses three drugs concurrent with radiation that's given twice a day for a week, and then the patients require a week off so that they can recover from this. It can't be given continuously. So here they're going to give approximately the same 70 gray, but in about 11-plus weeks instead of seven weeks because it's given week on and week off. And in the setting of that treatment, his results are excellent. So this suggests that when you give intensive chemo radiation, even if there's some protraction in the overall treatment time, that the extra benefit of the chemotherapy on cell kill and preventing proliferation during the recovery interval while patients are off from the radiation may not have as great an impact. In general, however, we really strive to keep patients on schedule because of the overwhelming data showing how important it is. Another relevant data set is patients who get surgery and post-operative radiation therapy. So typically, patients have their head and neck cancers resected. They'll have to recover for about four to six or eight weeks before starting the course of radiation therapy and then that takes about six weeks. And we've done studies and published on this that if the overall, what we call the treatment package time, that is from the day of surgery to the end of radiation, exceeds, in this case, it was the median value of about 100 days, that patients did worse with respect to overall local regional control and survival. So in general, we think that the time factor is critical and we have to do everything that we can to keep patients on schedule and prevent these unplanned interruptions. And much of that focuses on what we come back to as the dose-limiting toxicity of mucositis. And this is where the KGF or the paliferamin comes into play.
0: How does that compare to other agents? The one I know about is amifostine.
1: Well, amifostine falls into the same overall class of what we would call a radiation protector. The mechanism is different. Amifostine is a prodrug that ultimately gives rise to WR1065, which is the active moiety that has a sulfhydryl group that can compete for hydroxyl-free radicals induced by radiation before they can damage the intracellular targets. Now, this drug has been tested extensively in clinical trials and has been shown to have a major effect on reduction of salivary damage and major reduction in hyposalivation and xerostomia, dry mouth, in patients getting head and neck radiation. There have been relatively inconsistent results for mucositis reduction. Some studies have suggested it. It also appears that there may be a dose response. That is that the salivary tissues may selectively concentrate the amifostine, so they can achieve cytoprotective levels, whereas some of these other mucosal tissues may not selectively, and you may have to give a higher dose. And there have been some studies, especially from Greece, where much higher doses were given that led to sufficient intracellular mucosal levels to prevent mucositis. So these are both radioprotectors, and the mechanisms are different. So the palifermin KGF, stimulates the it's a mitogen, and it stimulates the growth and maturation. So, the, the hope, and we ran a study in RTOG additionally for some time, in addition to the one that you mentioned that Dave Brazil led. And the hope here is that we can start just before the radiation treatment and stimulate the mucosa so that the thickness can substantially increase by maybe two or three fold in some areas in experimental models and make it more resistant to the effects of radiation. The ultimate goal, then, would be for patients to suffer less from mucositis-associated symptoms, reduce their symptom burden, and reduce the need for unplanned breaks, and improve their overall outcomes with respect to the therapeutic index. Better tumor control, fewer symptoms and toxicities.
0: What's been seen? I mean, this paper, if I read it correctly, seemed like a little bit lukewarm in terms of what the outcomes were. Yeah, this was the earliest study that was done.
1: It was a randomized phase two study that actually had three groups. There was a sort of a placebo group. Then there were two therapeutic groups. All of the patients had radiation therapy, cisplatin, and FU5-fluorouracil. Concurrently, But one of the treatment groups had once a day, and the other one had a twice-a-day radiation therapy. The dose of the palifermin was 60 micrograms. And in that study, it's interesting that there was a reported benefit for patients who had the accelerated but not the standard radiation fractionation. That is, the more intense treatment seemed to have better results. And for the overall group combined, there really was not a major benefit. But that stimulated enough interest that and there was some suggestion that we really weren't seeing any of these effects that were reported as side effects of the drug, of palifermin. When patients would get higher doses of it, sometimes they would complain that their tongue felt thick. Presumably, this was a manifestation of the thickening of the mucosa. So that study led to some additional dose-finding studies with dose escalation. And it was really found that higher doses, probably at least three times, two to three times higher, around 180 microgram level, probably were much more effective. And so, there were actually biopsies were taken from the tongues of volunteers who took these higher doses, and through different staining, Ki67, etc., that there was really a stimulated effect from that. And so, that has led to additional studies, and there were three studies in head and neck. Two of them were industry-sponsored that closed in the last few months, and we're probably going to hear some results, hopefully, in these next national meetings over this next year. Then we had a study in the RTOG that got started later using a similar approach, placebo-controlled approach. In that study, we closed around the time that these other studies were much farther ahead, and once they achieved accrual, And we had other competing studies in the RTOG. That that study, unfortunately, had to get closed early. But we're looking forward to seeing the results of these other studies that have been completed that use these higher doses of palliferum and those doses that were shown to achieve those surrogate biologic effects that we were looking for. Any other similar agents that are being studied? Right now, there are some other growth factors such as Velafermin and similar types that are being investigated in smaller studies. There are some other agents that are being looked at as oral rinses. There's one rko 202 for instance, that has an antioxidant property to it that's being looked at as an oral rinse, and studies are being developed with that drug. There are some other oral rinses that exploit different biologic effects that are being developed, but these are farther behind and not nearly as promising as the paliferam and KGF potential.
0: Can you talk a little bit about some of the systemic therapy questions that are being looked at in clinical trials right now in the locally advanced settings, specifically the use of biologics and different chemo approaches, induction, etc., what your take is on these different issues? The biologic therapy
1: that is of interest is the anti-EGF receptor therapy, cetuximab C225, that's FDA-approved in head and neck cancer, in two indications. One is as a radiosensitizer, as a single agent for definitive therapy, local regionally advanced disease, and the other is for patients who have platinum refractory recurrent, or metastatic disease as monotherapy. The interesting thing in the radiation setting is that the local regional control improvement And the survival improvement with cetuximab as a radiosensitizer appears very similar to the results achieved by chemoradiation with cytotoxics. And the remarkable thing about it is that when you compare in the Bonner registration trial that was reported in New England Journal, that result was achieved without any increase in mucositis, acute mucositis, or feeding tube requirements, grade 3 dysphagia. So we're clearly asking the questions now, when can we substitute this biologic therapy, cetuximab, for the more toxic cytotoxic agents as radiosensitizers in patients, say, who have more intermediate disease? And then the other question that we're asking is that when we give maximally tolerated doses of radiation and chemotherapy for patients who have T4 tumors, We're still only controlling maybe 50 or 60% of them. We need to give them more intensive therapy, but we simply cannot intensify the radiation or chemotherapy. So we're actually running a trial now in RTOG 0522 where all patients get accelerated chemoradiation and we're randomizing them to receive cetuximab or not. The accrual is great. We've got over 500 patients and it seems to be well tolerated thus far as we're always monitoring this on a daily basis, these toxicity reports, and I think this is going to be very important.
0: Are there situations right now where you'd be comfortable with a patient receiving just the Toxamab without chemotherapy and radiation therapy?
1: The main area that everybody would agree would be patients who were not eligible for cisplatin as a radiation sensitizer. Now, you have to keep in mind that there are other agents that can be used as radiosensitizers, such as the taxanes, you know, for instance. So this is one situation. And then another is for patients who have more borderline tumors. That is, when the different involved physicians examine the patient, review the imaging data, and sometimes we'll have a borderline patient where we'll say, gee, I'm not really happy with radiation therapy potential alone, but on the other hand, I'm not really ready to make the leap to add the additional toxicities of concurrent chemotherapy. So there's this borderline stage patient that's important. And then there's a lot of debate about what other patients, where we can substitute. We don't have data for having a direct comparison of, say, cetuximab versus cisplatin as a radiosensitizer, but the results of cetuximab radiation over radiation alone in the registration trial seem to be as good as compared to other trials where chemotherapy was used. So we have to select those patients on individual basis for that.
0: What about cetuximab chemotherapy and radiation therapy off-study? Off-study, I don't recommend it. In fact, the
1: package insert specifically recommends that it not be used. And I think that we typically don't do that, even in our academic setting where sometimes you know we may use some more aggressive therapies. There was one study published earlier on that combined accelerated radiation, chemotherapy, and cetuximab that had some untoward toxicities and closed early that gave sort of pause for thought. However, a more careful examination of that study, there were many positive potential outcomes from that, and some of the toxicities probably could have been contained or prevented had we known then what we know now about some of the electrolyte-wasting properties, such as hypomagnesemia. So I think that ultimately it may be something that we may do, But I think that we really have to wait for trials to validate the safety and efficacy, such as the RTOG 0522
0: that we just discussed. What about safety issues in terms of cytokines combined with radiation therapy?
1: Well, in general, the toxicity profile is excellent. In comparison to radiation alone and in comparison to radiation and chemotherapy. Anytime a foreign protein is infused, there's always a small potential for an infusion reaction, maybe in the range of a couple of percent. One of the main toxicities that patients suffer from cetexamab therapy is the sort of follicular maculopapular rash, which I always tell the patients is a sort of a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it can be uncomfortable for them, but on the other hand, patients who develop this EGF inhibitor rash and Especially those who develop the more brisk forms of it turn out to have better responses and better outcomes. And then, of course, there are these electrolyte issues that we've discussed, magnesium especially, that require monitoring. But it really is, in general, very well tolerated. And the registration trial showed no increase in epithelial reaction related to the radiation. That is, radiation dermatitis, mucositis were not increased. And we're going to get further information of that as phase 4 trials and additional data is accrued on this. One thing that I think that is interesting that is a relatively newer phenomenon in toxicities and head and neck cancer treatment and the skin is that, and we've all seen in the general news, for instance, the increase in staff, especially MRSA infections, not hospital-acquired, but community-acquired, in high school gymnasiums and in health spas, for instance. So I think that any time that we're treating head and neck cancer patients and they get a radiation dermatitis and the epithelial integrity is interrupted, there is an increased risk for supra-infection. So when that happens, I think that it's very important that we culture the patients and start empiric treatment and then treat them according to the culture and sensitivity. And so whether this is radiation dermatitis alone or whether patients have a cetuximab rash or both together, which may further break down the epithelial barrier, we may even have to be more vigilant about that.
0: What about the issue of induction therapy?
1: Well, induction therapy has been around for a long time. And it started probably, you know, in the 80s or in the early 80s, late 70s, since cisplatin was shown to be effective in the therapeutic setting for patients with metastatic disease. Induction therapy really took hold after the VA larynx trial was presented, and there was a clear suggested role in organ preservation. Then there were other trials done after that that showed that while there may be an improvement in response, in even complete response in significant proportions of patients, This did not ultimately affect local regional control or survival. Now, only more recently have we seen trials looking at more active drugs and more active combinations in the adduction setting, usually the taxanes, specifically docetaxel, in combination with platinum, cisplatin, and 5-FU, so-called TPF regimen, where we have two phase three trials that randomize patients who are going to get radiation to induction therapy with either PF versus TPF that showed improvements in survival. So, this is very compelling information. Now, what we don't know the answer to is what happens if patients are going to get aggressive concurrent chemo radiation. In that setting, does TPF induction make a difference in survival? What does it add? And so there are three trials looking at that that are ongoing, and those are going to be very, very important. But I think that the data that we have now, we have at least these two New England Journal articles, Tax-323, Tax-324. And then we have a couple of European trials, especially one in larynx cancer, that show that if you give TPF over PF, that there's an improvement in survival in that induction setting. So this is the first time we see that clearly in multiple phase three trials, a more active triplet regimen of induction can clearly improve survival. Now, it's important to put in context, we discussed how as local regional therapy is intensified and improves local regional control, the problem of distant metastasis is becoming more relevant. So let me give an example. You know, another area that we haven't discussed is the problem of HPV, which is becoming more relevant in oropharynx cancer, which is one of the more common cancers that we treat. But let's say that we get a young woman, a 40-year-old woman, who presents with some relatively bulky neck disease, and only on careful examination is found to have a small primary tonsil tumor squamous cancer. So let's say this is a T1, N2B, or C, or N3. With radiation alone, that is single modality radiation plus minus neck dissection if there's any residual nodal disease afterwards, the local regional control is going to be excellent. But patients with N2B, N2C, N3 disease may have as high as a 20 or 30% risk of ultimate distant metastasis development. So in this case, the distant risk exceeds the local regional risk for first failure. So this is why now there is a significant interest in looking at induction again in discussing even in the off-protocol setting with many of these patients their expected risks with respect to patterns of failure and how to best address those. Concurrent chemoradiation simply does not reliably reduce risk for distant metastasis. So it is wrong to offer somebody concurrent chemo radiation because you feel that you're addressing the risk of distant metastasis based on, say, more advanced nodal disease. It's simply not going to work reliably for that. So. I think this is one of the very contentious areas in tumor board discussions now and in areas where we really have to sit down with patients individually and discuss case by case what their patterns of failure risks are, how we can address them, and what they want to do whether we have level one evidence or weaker evidence for that. Because in many cases, it doesn't make sense to give a very aggressive treatment package addressed at a risk of failure that is lower than just totally ignore a risk that can be twice as high, such as the distant metastasis
0: risk. What's the typical time course for recurrence after chemoradiation or induction therapy with radiation therapy? When do most of the recurrences occur? And how often do you see delayed recurrences? Most recurrences will be within the
1: year, and within the first two years, the majority of recurrences. The first year is the highest risk. The second year, most of the other ones occur. They're much less common beyond that, and that's both for local and distant. Delayed recurrences are much less common.
0: Much less, as in hardly ever. I guess I'm thinking from the point of view of patient counseling, When patients get to three years or five years or 10 years, is there a time point where you say, you know, it's possible, but really not very likely you're going to have a recurrence? It's interesting. We just recently had a pair on what we call conditional survival
1: in cancer this year that looked at that problem. And really, after the first two or three years, the level really flattens out. And it's very uncommon to have recurrences beyond that. Some of the major risks that patients may have as they go on is the risk for second primary tumors that are perhaps related to the same risk factors such as tobacco, alcohol, that led to the first tumor. Which always brings up the point that smoking cessation and monitoring for that, the quote, fourth vital side question to make sure they're not smoking it is always important to ask all the way through early through treatment and through the follow-up interval.